Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Now, for those of you who regularly listen to the show, you know it is very important to us to raise the bar of the common level of horsemanship. In doing so, we like to educate and expose our listeners to some of the greatest horsemen in the world and amazing educational opportunities. Now, Jonathan Field was featured in episode 17 of the 2018 season. Jonathan has two amazing clinics coming up in March in California. The first clinic, Course 1, will be March 9th through 11th, followed by Course 3, March 16th through the 18th. Now, Jonathan limits his clinics to only a handful of riders, so there's a great chance these courses will fill up quick. If you cannot get into the clinic, however, Jonathan offers a more than reasonable price of $25 a day for spectators and is doing a deal of $60 if you pay for all three days. Now, both clinics will be hosted at Marsh Creek Stables, located in Brentwood, California, at 24670 Marsh Creek Road. I can speak from firsthand experience in telling you that this is an incredible facility. There's both indoor and outdoor riding arenas that will be included in the clinic. Feel free to bring a chair, pad, or blanket for comfort while watching the clinic. Additionally, there will be coffee and food on site available for purchase. Now, Marsh Creek Stables is located only a few minutes from town, which gives you access to additional dining and hotels. All clinic days will start at about 8 a.m. and finish around 5 p.m. Now remember, we're all on horse time, so they will dictate when it's time to turn it in for the night. For additional information on this amazing opportunity, I encourage you to visit jonathanfieldhorsemanship.net or email info at jonathanfield.net. I encourage you all to come out and enjoy this amazing opportunity to learn from Jonathan Field. We look forward to seeing you all there, and we're going to have a great time. Welcome everybody to our first Sunday episode here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. This week we have moved the show from Friday to Sunday. Sunday will now be our permanent home for the time being. So once you get out of church, you're on your way home from the rodeo performance, go ahead and throw on the podcast. Maybe you need a little encouragement going into the week. Go ahead and turn on the show, sit down, relax, and gain a little insight. Now this week on the show, we have Zach Ducheneau of the DX Ranch in South Dakota. Now previously on the show, we had J.D. Steffen from Hot Tamale Horsemanship. He's interned there at the DX Ranch. Last week's guest was Jen Zeller, who's a contributing family member there at the DX Ranch, and And now we have another influential member kind of completing the trifecta of guests coming out of the DX Ranch. Now there's many other family members who play contributing roles in in the ranch and their custom beef operation and Project Help, the nonprofit that they run there. But Zach has an incredible story. Uh, He has invested his whole entire life into helping others. He's a third generation rancher there on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. He has worked in many different positions on different tribal councils and cooperatives there as related to tribal agricultural and the needs of that entity. I very much enjoyed my time with Zach. He has an incredible testimony. And going through the show, you can just feel the genuine nature of his personality and his willingness to help others. Now, the DX Ranch has a clinic coming up in May. I invite each and every one of you to visit their social media and their website to find out more information on what the clinic has to offer. And again, should you find this content valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. I hate to keep you all waiting any longer. 
Here is Zach Ducheneau. Zach, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Jason. I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Good. Thank you very much for taking time out of your early morning to make make time for everybody here at Let Freedom Rain Podcast. We're definitely intrigued with your story. You got a lot to offer, and uh, your better half was on last week. So here's the follow up, and I guess the the king of the ranch this week, huh? <laughs> well, I just. Uh... <laughs> Well, just, just the oldest, I think, is, is how I'd qualify it. I was going to say, hopefully hopefully she misses the first, what, 35, 40 seconds of this show, and, and we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, se- we'll call me the oldest oldest on the ranch, yeah. not the king of it. We'll just, we'll just leave it a secret amongst friends. How about that? You're very good. So, you guys run DX Ranch in South Dakota. What's, yep. what's new for you guys around the ranch? I know 2019, you got some endeavors that you're, you're going to leap out into and, and the ranch is kind of just naturally growing with the ebb and flow of, of running a business. Well, some of the stuff that we're most proud of with, with regard to the ranch, tie back to the ranch's nonprofit that was started by all of the family members that participate in the ranch. And uh, 2019, we'll be having our second STEM camp, science, technology, engineering, math camp with some of the local students to actually show them how we can apply some of our life and ship principles to scientific endeavor and, and scientific study. Uh, my daughter is one of the participants on the ranch. She's going all in on her ranch-raised beef business to where we're kind of a custom, custom, custom slaughter, uh, but basically a subscription beef service to where folks can let us know a little while ahead of time what they'd like, if they'd like it corn finished or just grass fed and grass finished, we can do that. Oh wow. We've also yeah, it's a it's a really a good opportunity and you know, we haven't eaten any beef but our own here for fifteen years. And that was when we started to eat the good stuff. Before that, we were like every other rancher in the world that if you had a crippled cow or something with a bad jaw or a bad eye, you took it and you ate it yourself. We decided back then that there's no point in us trying to raise the best beef in the world without eating some of it ourselves. I was going to say, you got to bask in a little bit of the glory, right? We, we, we sure did, and we, and we haven't regretted it one bit. That's impressive. It sounds like a pretty interesting little program you guys got with the, with the custom beef side of it. Yeah, that'll, that'll be a really a, a great value-added component. You know, too, too many of our ag production people nationwide especially in indian country are too far from the consumer and we hope that we can kind of bridge that gap and improve our profitability while we provide them a better deal and a better product than they'd be able to get at the store now when you when you use the term too far from the consumer or excuse me the phrase too far from the consumer i'm sure there's literal and figurative components to that can you kind of explain some of that and and why that's a deficit within the beef industry yeah the, the literal component in our neck of the woods there's we've done some internal studies with the the nonprofit that pays my day wage and it's about 1200 miles that the beef will have on it by the time it gets back to our local grocery store if we're lucky enough to get the beef that originated here wow on the Sharon River City reservation so there's the literal concept but the figurative concept too many steps in between and too many middlemen we can provide somebody a quarter or a half or a whole beef at hamburger prices that they're paying in their local store and they're getting T-bones and tenderloins and ribeye steaks. And all they need is to have the capacity to, to store it. So all of the people in the middle of that 
gobble up any profitability. So the producers are standing out here with their pockets hanging out. Yeah. And the consumers are complaining about the product they're getting in the store being high priced. And it sure in heck ain't getting back out here to the guys in the prairie. Yeah, as I'm saying, it's a no win for everybody. Now, you mentioned the STEM camp. And in Jen's episode, we talked a little bit about Project Help, which is another nonprofit that you guys run. Let's talk very briefly about the community in which you guys live in and kind of the community that you serve and why there is a need for these st- the STEM camp and, and Project Help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this kind of ties into our ranch and, and the history of our ranch. So our ranch is on the eastern edge, the southeastern corner of the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. The Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation is one of the seven reservations in western South Dakota that was broken up to create the, the, when they split up the Great Sioux Reservation to give the land to the settlers in the middle of the state. We're home to about 14,000 tribal members. Our tribe, our, our reservation rather, is home to four bands of the Great Sioux Nation. It's our absolute privilege and honor to be able to rent some of the ground that's owned by those folks and operate our ranch. And that ties back into our inclination and our internal drive to give something back to the communities that we that we come from. One of the things that we do that through is Project Help. That's our nonprofit where we provide our lifemanship lessons to local youth at no cost to them. And they have free access to our indoor arena at no cost to them whenever they can get here. And oftentimes we drive to their community and get them and bring them down for the activities. A component of that that we're trying to tie into the the beef model is a, have you heard of Tom's Shoes? No, sir. So Tom's Shoes is a, is a great project where for every pair of shoes you you buy, someone that can't afford a pair of shoes will get one. Oh, okay. And, and what we want to do with that is, for every pound of beef we sell out of here that was that was created using our tribal brothers and sisters resource we want to provide a pound of beef locally to a nonprofit to a school to some families that that are interested so that you know we 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 definitely understand how lucky we are to be here and we're devoting the rest of our lives to giving it back and trying to get Trying to get even. I was going to say, so much of it ties back to the stewardship, right? Not only the stewardship of the land, but the animals. And, and it sounds yeah. like the, the community as well in which you guys are invested in. Absolutely. So Absolutely. We have quite a bit to talk about. The DX Ranch is involved in numerous programs. A couple of them we've touched on before, and we'll go into greater detail as the show goes on. But if you don't mind, let's take a few minutes. And if you can introduce yourself to guests and kind of your upbringing in, in horses and the ranching lifestyle and and that evolution, and uh, we'll, we'll see where the conversation goes from there. You bet. Well, I was uh, born in Eagle Butte, South Dakota in 1969, and home for me for the first part of my life, the first five years of my life, was just across the draw over here at mom and dad's old place. And my dad kind of had that same bent about giving back to the community, he served as the tribal chairman from the time I was five till the time I was nine. So we picked up and moved to town so he could be there 16, 18 hours a day and do the job the way he thought it should be done. And frankly, the way I think it should be done. When I was nine, we moved back down here to the, to the ranch and really 
a lot of my formative processes came during that time from the time I was nine to the time I was 16. And, uh, we didn't have a lot that was during the farm crisis. The eighties prevailing interest rates were 20% or better. I can't imagine how anybody was able to do it because I whine around if I have to pay six or 7%. Yeah. It's incredible what it was, right? I can remember one of one of my fondest memories of the old man and I doing something together was he said, hey, Zach, come out here. I want you to help me. And I was probably nine, 10 years old. We walked out to the old junk pile there just east of the old garage that we had. And we started looking at tires. And what we were doing was looking for the best used up tire we had to put on the pickup because its used up tires were worse than those. So we ended up finding a couple tires and swapping them out. You know, nowadays we're fortunate enough to live in a world where if my mom, who we called Granny, got a flat tire, she'd oftentimes just go get a get a brand new set of tires and somebody would figure out how to pay for them. But things things were a lot different back then. And dad and mom were raising seven of us. Wow, that's a huge family. And the Production Credit Association, which is now the Farm Credit Services of America, had pulled the rug out of all of these Indian producers on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation because of a couple of bad actors. And it was awful tough. There were times that if it hadn't been for the good nature of Bob and Faye Butler, at Butler's Jack and Jill in Eagle Butte, our family wouldn't have eaten for weeks or months at a time. But they were able to, my dad was able to go up there and say, Bob, I'm going to pay you. I need to feed my family. I give you my word. I'll get this all paid up. And old Bob Butler took the old man at his word, and dad was as good as his word, and paid him back with interest when he got everything straightened out finally. Oh, wow. That good fortune, we, we have an obligation to pass that on. We can't just keep that and hoard it, Jason. It, it's incumbent upon us to give that to someone else. So we do our best to make our our place welcoming and accepting of everybody, just like mom and dad did. One of the quotes that I really like that my daughter came up with, she said, it's the easiest hello and the hardest goodbye in the world coming to the ranch, coming home. And a lot of her friends have told her the same thing. And, you know, kind of once people come here, they're part of the family. And my favorite parting words to people are, as long as I've got a roof, you do come on back anytime. That's impressive. And and we had a previous guest, J.D. Stefan, on the show. And that was one of the one of the points that he had touched on was just the transition and the the welcoming feeling at the ranch is like, I mean, he had been there for years and, and he's feeling that the moment he showed up. So it's, it's a living testament that, that it's, it's a value that runs deep in the, in the core of the DX ranch. That's good. I'm glad, glad to hear that it's, that it's resonating and that people are feeling that because that's sure what we're trying to put out there. And we get that all from my mom and dad. When my dad was 13 years old, him and his dad got in a, got in an altercation and a fight and he got kicked out and he didn't know where to go. So he lived, went and lived with his, one of his uncles. So his formative years, he spent putting together a place where nobody could ever throw me out of, he said, mm-hmm. and that ever, everybody was welcome. It's impressive. And it's, it's a very valuable lesson to learn when you talk about, you know, using your gifts and your blessings and passing them on. And, and it's unfortunate that you guys had to experience such trying times to learn that lesson but in the same regard 
learning it so early on in life, I mean, you are able to make an impact on so many more people. You know, it's a lesson that I've just learned recently in my life. And the earlier part of my years, when I was trying to develop myself and my career and all that sort, I used a lot of skills and abilities for me. I was very, very selfish with it. And it's only in, until these last few years that I start to learn that, hey, these skills and abilities that I've been blessed with, they could be used for so much more valuable purposes and missions, you know, and helping others and reaching out and trying to trying to pick up people that have been in positions that I had previously been in, you know, that were less than desirable or favorable. Absolutely. And an, another of the lessons that that we've adopted from that, there, there's kind of a, a stoicism with which mom and dad got us through all of that. I didn't know I was a poor kid looking through the tire pile. I was helping my dad. Yeah. We, we didn't know that the grocery store man was feeding us on dad's word until after all of that was resolved. So they, and, and one of the reasons that I'm in agriculture and my kids are in agriculture, another lesson that I learned from the old man, I never heard him gripe or complain once going out to do things, no matter what it was, you know, a prolapse cow or, or haying or hauling hay or whatever. He was always cheerful and even keeled doing it. So there wasn't a reluctance on my part, to get into it. Yeah. And yeah. too too much in the ag sector, we don't engage in that stoicism and that focus on the positive. We focus on the 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 gosh darn bankers and the price of feed and the low price of our goods and and that's the things our kids hear. So it's no wonder that the average age of the farmer or rancher in the country is fifty six and going up. Yeah. It makes absolute sense, right? Because these these up and coming generations don't have the the warm fuzzy feeling per se coming up in it. You know, when you see dad yeah. griping and complaining or talking bad about the industry, why why would you want to participate in it? See, and if I if I would have known then what I was doing on the fire pile, there would have been a stigma that that I felt put on me by the prevailing society mm-hmm. of fail of failure and and I'd I'd have felt bad about it. And there's mm-hmm. no way I would ever want to bring my kids up doing this so it's uh it that's a great lesson the 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 stoicism the you just you kind of hold that and protect those that you love that can't quite deal with that stuff yet yeah absolutely shield shield them from it absolutely but you make points that are kind of the the driving force of this show right that that your perspective on things how you think about things often dictates your outcome and and changes in that perspective play a huge role in, in how you look at it or how you tackle a challenge or, you know, how you come out of a trying situation. You can, you can play victim or, yep. or you can play victor, you know, but you do have yeah. the power as a human being to, to make that decision and kind of choose your path despite the circumstances or societal needs or societal impressions or input or, or opinion. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about some of your work in agriculture, right? It has obviously been a driving force of your life, um, inherited from your father. You've been a member of many councils and many cooperatives and and the board member on many different nonprofits. Why don't you kind of highlight some of the work that you've done in the agricultural field, keeping this industry alive and, and being that voice? The The most important work that I get to do now by virtue of my position at the Intertribal Agriculture Council, is the work on access to fair credit for Native American borrowers. 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term redlining when it comes to finance and credit. I am not. If you want to kind of elaborate on it, A, for my education, but I'm sure more than one listener will be wondering too. You bet. So red redlining is a practice of drawing a red line on a map and saying we're not going to lend there because there's too much risk or there's not enough collateral or we don't agree with the way their court system operates or what have you. It's discriminatory lending practices is what it boils down to. And we're working at erasing that red line in these communities and, and helping our Indian producers get the same access to capital that non-Indian producers have. If you go just across the river here and you don't get 40, 50 miles down the road and there's an ethanol plant to do the value-added production on the crops that they grow. Our reservation encompasses a footprint of about 3 million acres. Wow. And there is not one slaughter facility on the entire thing. Wow. There might be a mom-and-pop custom slaughter shop, but when you're growing 70,000 cows, it just makes sense to have... Yeah, commercial operation, per se. Commercial operation there, yeah. So so we're, we're working at kind of chipping away at those barriers. I got involved with the Intertribal Agriculture Council back in the mid-'90s because of poor timing on my part, get, poor timing and optimism on my part getting into the cattle industry. Yeah, I bought heifer, I bought heifer calves for $560, and I thought, man, I'm going to make a lot on these because I'm going to sell them for $1,100 next spring and keep the rest for my cow herd and I'll be going great guns and I sold those same heifer calves as bred heifers for $555 and you know had a had a young family with a child and was trying to figure out how to feed them and I was flipping through some of the mail we had and I run across this publication this quarterly publication called the Indian Ag Link and it was the Intertribal Ag Council's publication and they were looking for a farm advocate in the back of it and it was a work from home for 20 hours a week for 10 bucks an hour and that seemed like an awful lot of money to me right then so i made a couple calls and uh got a hold of the guy and they put me to work got to know those folks pretty well in a, during a three-year gig there and when the grant money ran out for that program they they furloughed us or let us go or fired us or everyone Qualify left on good terms though, and uh, shortly, shortly thereafter. Well, during that time, I realized there were things that we could do as a nation of people here on my reservation to improve the opportunity for our tribal producers. So, I tried to get elected to the tribal council once in 1998 and was unsuccessful. I tried again in 2000 and was successful. Shortly after becoming elected to the tribal council, I asked the tribal council if they would make me the delegate to the intertribal ag council, and they acquiesced to my request. And I've been intimately involved with the IAC ever since, serving as a member of the board of directors and now as an employee and currently the prospective replacement for our executive director this year. Oh, wow. So we'll get to keep we'll get to keep carrying that that tradition of helping others forward and improving the the ability of our folks to get into value-added production. We had a significant effort this year or the past year getting some Native American provisions into the Farm Bill and had a coalition nationwide of tribal nations and tribal organizations advocating for the needs of Indian country in the Farm Bill and had a 
pretty decent measure of success at it. So we're looking forward to the next one to gain on that success. So it sounds like this is not a unique hurdle for the greater Sioux Nation. The, yeah. The, it, I mean, this 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 is a common thread or this issue is a common thread amongst many different tribes, yeah? Yes, it is. It's And, and there's a few exceptions to it, Jason. There's the... The Shakopee, Medawakavan Sioux community over east of here, about five hours. They are right south of the Twin Cities in many Minnesota, mm-hmm. and they've got a casino. So they basically have a money factory there. The, yeah. the great thing about our Shakopee brothers, they've got a philanthropy wing like you wouldn't believe. They give away scores of millions of dollars a year, and they lend out another hundreds of millions of dollars a year, not just to tribal communities to any community in need because they realize their good fortune. And, and they're, to me, they're the model of what all casino tribes should be doing. And we wouldn't have been able to put the Farm Bill Coalition together, frankly, without their help and mobilize so many people because they made a grant towards that effort. That's impressive. There are other exceptions where the tribes just, you know, the land that they were left with after the theft happens to be right next to where they needed to build a big road. So they have a casino right along an interstate, and they're able to use that capital for taking care of their folks or, or helping others. And Shakopee and the Quapaw tribe down in northeastern Oklahoma, they're starting to diversify that income. The Quapaw's got an actual slaughter facility on their property, and they've got all of their food featured in their casino. They've got their own their own beekeepers to help pollinate the garden that they grow you know the, the they've really got the whole circle of, of food production put starting to put back together there and that's kind of the model that we want to employ everywhere in indian country the tricky part is we got to find access to capital at rates that let us make that happen yeah at least get the system up and running i mean it sounds like the model's yes, impressive sir. it's it's a almost an ecosystem per se right self-sustaining and yeah and each endeavor drives the other or or, or supports yeah. the other. And obviously with any business, right, that initial startup is usually the make or break and most difficult portion of it. Yeah. So let's talk a little about, about your experience with horses. Obviously, growing up on the ranch, you were probably exposed to horses earlier than most individuals. However, what were some of your, in thinking back of your upbringing with the horses, what were kind of some of your formidable experiences that kind of shaped the views that you now use with your quarter horses there on the ranch? You bet. So my, my, I remember being around or near horses during our, our, my first five years down here vaguely, you know that, but when I was nine to nine to 16 being here, I really got a lot of exposure to it. And my dad had a had a very unique approach to horses. He wanted disposition first, and he bred for that, selected ruthlessly for that. So I grew up around gentle horses. You know, my I've got neighbors up the road, eight ten miles. The Reeves boys, they're the, some of the saltiest bronc riders that ever set foot on the planet. And still to this day, if one goes two or three jumps, I'm probably going to fall off or look for a way to get out of it. I'm yeah. not a bronc rider yeah. by any stretch, but it's by virtue of the philosophy that Dad had around his horses. They were going to be gentle because if you've got a gentle, calm horse, they can they can fill in so much more for you. 
And one of the one of the highlights that I really remember from that era in my life, actually, it was before we moved back down. I, while Dad was still chairman, we came down for the weekend to visit the hired man and and check things out. And just I suppose Dad needed to decompress and get out of the get out of the the rat race, if you will. And they were up having coffee, so I went down and I was going to catch old Running Bear. Running Bear was literally part of the family. We raised him from a bum colt. And he taught every one of dad's seven kids to ride. But back then, Bear and I were each about seven or eight years old. So I went and I grabbed Bear's bridle and I went out there and I tried to catch him. And I'd get within about four or five feet and he'd wheel and run away and go to the other end of the pen. So I'd keep trying and eventually I got frustrated. And I can remember sitting down on the feed trough in that pen crying in frustration and Old Bear saw me crying over there, and he came over and said, Geez, kid, I thought you were playing with me. I didn't know you wanted to catch me, and I got him caught, and I got my ride in. But it was because of the empathy of that horse. <laughs> you know, if he hadn't uh, decided, oh, geez, I was just, we were having we were having fun. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Yeah, he just saw her playing around. Yeah, so I got a lot of experience around horses through that seven-year stretch before I left to go drop out of college. And... uh we weren't doing things this way and didn't have a lot of chance to get exposed to it this way. Back in those days, Ray Hunt was driving that little trailer down the road, hitting every community they wanted to. And and there was uh, people wanted to prove him wrong. Nobody wanted to believe that they could do things better, you know. And I'm sure Ray or someone closer to him can tell the story a lot better, but our community was no different. So one of Ray's disciples was coming here to put on a, a disciple, probably a poor choice of word, but one of the guys, <laughs> one, of, one of the guys that Ray mentored was coming to the country to, to do a demonstration, show guys, maybe, God, try this, it might be a little better way. Well, dad's hired man at the time went up and watched. And back then the, the program for those deals was people would bring the biggest rangtang horse they could find just to prove this knucklehead from out west wrong and they did that and this guy got every horse rode but one of the horses ended up a little sore foot because he had to rope the back foot on it to to get on like you've seen them do Mm -hmm. sometimes you know not tie it up like the old school would do but you get a hold of that horse's back foot and help help it realize it can stay put and then you get on and you go for a ride and they got every horse rode but the only story that came out of there through the through the hired man to the old man was, yeah, those fancy SOBs, they crippled a horse. So dad never looked at it. If dad had seen it, dad would have saw the good in it, saw the value in it, and because it wasn't that arrogant that he didn't realize a better deal when it was in front of him. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny. We went to a hunting clinic in Faith back in the, oh, around 2004 or five. That same attitude was still there, and Ray had really? proven this for decades. And there were old cowboys over there that thought, "Oh, well, yeah, I don't know, old guy." And, and it's just funny because if if they just open their eyes to maybe a little different way, things things would not just get better in their horse relationship; it'd get better in everything. The way we handled horses was the way that my dad handled horses, but he wasn't a bronc rider either. He had done all of that old stuff. 
Uh, he got into kind of Mike Kevill back then when Mike Kevill had those little pocketbooks. And Mike Kevill would go out there, he'd tie that horse to the post, and he'd sack him out till he got relaxed. And they'd saddle the horse there, tied up to the post, and then you'd let the horse wear that saddle around and buck for a day or two. And then you would put a bit in his mouth and then you'd tie his head back each way. And then you'd drive him around with the long reins from behind and we'd do it for three, four, five days. So we would, uh, you know, to start a colt for us was an eight day process to, 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 before you'd even go to get on. <clears throat> and we had gentle horses, but we just didn't know how much we could capitalize on that, that horse's willingness to be a partner back then and then i uh around uh, i graduated early from high school and i stayed home and took care of the ranch one year when dad did his second gig as the tribal chairman and went off to morris minnesota to, to college for for a, a few years off and on and it wasn't that college was for me or wasn't for me it there was a hell of a draw to be back home where this comfort and this good feeling is. So it, it took me about six years to finally get dropped out of college. But during that time, some of the things that I learned here, you know, growing up in this environment, ranching, agriculture, a kid learns that there's really not much you can't do if you just set your mind to it. And that's part of the stuff that we want to hope, want to instill with our work with Project Help and Lifemanship. But how that leveraged itself into my college experience is I had played one year of football in college in high school. And the only reason I got to do that was because my cousin was playing. So I got to stay with him and ride up because we were an hour, 15 minute bus ride from school. But heck I walked on and played football a couple of years. I didn't get much playing time because I didn't have the experience, but I didn't figure I couldn't do it if I could just get enough experience. Yeah. And that, that, that's that, that sense of self, that inner confidence that, that you can develop working thoughtfully with these critters and putting up hay for 10 hours a day. You know, you kind of learn to depend on yourself a little more than, than what you do if you grow up in a, in a less rural setting. So then uh, after I got dropped out of college, or as I was, the old man sat my brother Guthrie and I down. Incidentally, my brother Guthrie and his wife, Bud and his wife and kids, they're all part of the ranch now, along with Jen and I and our kids here. So don't want to leave them out of the ranch story because we couldn't do it without them and they couldn't do it without us. We all see this as a family operation. But uh, the old man sat us down and he said, I'm ready to get out of this. One of you guys needs to get in. And Beth and I looked at each other, and we had started at that point taking turns, taking a, a quarter off of college to stay home and help him. And Guth was just due to roll back into going to school, and I was due to roll out. And I said, well, I will if you don't want to, Guth. And he said, you can. If, if you don't want to, I will. So that's how that was the that was the generational transfer. Yeah, how the torch right passed. That day. Yeah, and, and from that day on, the old man never questioned a thing I did. I mean, he'd make fun of some of the things that we were doing that were different, but he never questioned me, never told me, by God, you got to do it this way because I built this thing. When he gave us the reins, he gave us the reins. And again, that's another thing, another lesson that, 
agriculture could learn from that old fella is you got to be willing to give up the control sometimes if yeah. you want them to if you want them to engage I think you bring up an interesting point when you talk about the the torch being passed between your father and you and your brother and him literally just relinquishing all control right just giving you and your brother the ability to make your own decisions and yep. and figure out the ranch and Obviously, there's poking and prodding in the banter of it, right? But that's part of being a family, yeah. and he wasn't necessarily chastising the job that you were doing. And what's incredible throughout a lot of your story, right, is that you learn these life lessons, and you obtain these skills and these opinions and theories, and you're very quick to pass them on, because I distinctly remember J.D. Stephan talking about coming out to the ranch, and that was one of the one of the observations that he had made, is that you guys were going out, I think, to check some cattle or work some cattle, and you just kind of let him do his thing. You know, here he is, yeah. you know, a day or two on the ranch. Um, I can't remember the specific amount of time, but it was a relatively short amount of time. And instead of doing the micromanaging and and overseeing everything, you just kind of cut him loose and let him do his own thing and make his own decisions. And a lot of that relinquishing of control uh, has to do, has, has a direct impact on horsemanship. I think a lot of people hang on to a little bit too much control and don't instill that that trust in the horse. I've experienced that myself. It's been a hurdle I've had to overcome. So, yep. I mean, we're starting to interweave a lot of the life, lifemanship lessons that you have developed, right? We're understanding why and where they're coming from, which is very yeah. impressive. In going back through this horsemanship, we kind of have always, we being, being horsemen in general, have always kind of had this struggle of the quote-unquote old cowboy way of more horsemanship, right? Yeah, I like that. Term. So, so for you, I got that one. I'm gonna steal that one from Jonathan Field. He was the one that first introduced me to that. But it makes absolute sense, right? Yes, it does. I like that. Force those horses into into scenarios and being a, a conditioned response animal. There's there's any number of things you can get them to do. Whether they're willing or wanting to do it is a different story. Yeah. So you've developed quite a unique theory to horsemanship and and being on that horse's time. What were the formidable experiences or where did your collection of, of information come from to formulate your approach? Well, and this is funny because, you know, I didn't start out as open-minded as the old man always was my dad, you know, I, so one year a after my college stint, I had a friend that, that stayed in college and he was from uh, somewhere over there in Minnesota, but he wanted to go to vet school. He said, you know, I'd, I'd like to get some experience around animals. I grew up in a in a suburban sort of rural setting, but I'd like to come out to your place and get some experience around animals. And I said, well, come on out. I will I can pay something at the end of the year. I don't know what it'll be yet till we sell our calves, but come out and we'll, we'll quote, unquote, put you to work. So he showed up, and his upbringing had him a lot more inclined to just be doing something all day. Sometimes I'll sit and think about how I want to put up a krell for 45 minutes before I start doing it. And so, you know, he, he, uh, some of that didn't resonate with him. So he was looking for extra stuff to do. I said, well, hey, uh, our neighbor, Nub Long over the hill, he's, uh, ranching over there too and does things a little different. You might, and he's always, he's really handy around stock. One of the best, best, uh, the handiest stockmen I've ever been around. So JC, would drive over the hill in the evenings and go visit with Nub. And Nub showed him 
the Ray Hunt video where Ray's working with the Sorrel Colt in the covered round pin. And JC was all in hook, line, and sinker. And I hadn't been exposed to it yet. I didn't even know the secondhand story of how Ray Hunt's protege had tried to come into this country. But Nub was at that event where that guy soared that horse's foot up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Nub took a hold of it, and he started doing it because he had worked out on the, the big the big ranches out in uh, northeastern Wyoming, southeastern Montana on the Crow and Northern Cheyenne reservations, and did a lot of colt starting the 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 horsemanship way. You know, it, yeah. they'd tie they'd tie a leg up and saddle it up. He'd get on and they'd open the gate and they'd go. And the guy that was on the horse they did it to yesterday was the hazer to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And Nub saw the the value in this, so he he adopted it and put his spin on it and started sharing that with folks locally here. Any that would take it. It it was a it was a tough crowd to crack into it. And, and there's still not a lot of people right here in this little corner of our our world that that buy into this. But that's all right. It lets us share it with the, the youth around here. I was gonna say it gives you guys opportunity, right? Yeah, as a brand new deal. So so J C would go over there and, and hang out with Nub and they'd watch Ray Hunt and he'd talk about these things and Nub also had a Buck Branaman video. He called him Buck Branahan. And uh, <laughs> he uh, he didn't warm to Buck Branahan as much as he did Ray Hunt. Because in, in that video that he had, Buck says, well, you might be a big fatty and you might have to get your horse up to the fence and to get on. So you want to, and he couldn't have just said, hey, what if you got your horse up to the fence? And Nub had a son that was a little overweight and, he took offense to that, mm-hmm. and I don't judge him for that. Yeah, say that's a man's decision. Yep. Anyway, JC brought that video over for us to watch one rainy day when we wasn't doing anything else. And me and my brother Guthrie and JC sat there and watched that Ray Hunt video, and we were so defensive of the way we do things that all we did was look, try to find the changes in the shadows to see how long this really took try to find some indication of, you know, this isn't really a horse that he's never been around before. This is probably his, his old saddle horse. And he's just doing this because that's what, it, that's what it looked like. Mm-hmm. It looked like a long-term relationship with that horse was just being demonstrated in that round pin and come to find out it's the, it's the long-term relationship with the concept of horses that was causing the success there. And that's the journey that we're on now. But we scoffed at it. We looked down our nose at it and te- probably even teased JC about it because we're we are lethal with our smartassery on this place. <laughs> but uh, JC went back to school. Might have been that winter, or it was about November. It was either the the following or the subsequent fall that Nub called. He said, "Hey Zach, uh, you know you got that barn down there, Gavin and stuff." I'd, like to get a few friends together and have a little cold starting party. Would you mind if we come over and used it? And I said, well, heck no, come on over. So I went down and I cleaned the barn up and got things ready. And I threw a round pin up in there for him. I, that's all he needed. He said, well, well, we'll be over there Saturday about 10 and Maria will bring a pot of chili and we'll start some colts. So in my mind, they're going to be here for about a week or 10 days. Yeah. They're setting up camp. Yeah. And so 
they show up and I see them unloading horses, just back the trailer up to the corral and, and kicking loose horses out, not leading horses out of the trailer. So I go down to say hello, see if there's anything they need. And Nub's in there working with one of these colts right now. And I go over there and he says, hey, Zach, how you doing? And I said, good. I'm starting to watch what he's doing. And he said, oh, well, how old's that one? He says, he's two. And Nub would go in there and he said, I, he'd say, I'm going to rope him and I can work with whatever I catch. If I catch his tail, I can work with that. If I catch a foot, I can work with that. Nub could rope and catch any part that he needed to because he's that handy with a rope. But mm-hmm. this particular colt, he saw something in it that, that said, hey, I need to get control of that front foot. I need to help you get comfortable with me moving that front foot. So Nub had, had this horse by the front foot. And within just a little bit of time, we're talking a half hour, this horse is standing there next to Nub with his front foot. Nub's got the, the saddle pad going up and down on his back, and he saddles that son of a gun right there with a rope on his front foot and the the tail of the rope up around his neck there, you know. And he gets him saddled and lets him go. I said, huh? uh, going to put a halter on him? He said, well, oh, Zach, this Coltine halter broke. <laughs> so he, he did that all. With that That's physical impressive. connection yeah. to the horse's foot. Yeah, developing that and relationship. When I saw that, I was hooked on hard to this thing. I mean, the, the hook was set, and I was going wherever this took me. And Nub said, you got one you want to start, Zach? Because he's what I had asked him was, what are you going to do now? Are you going to tie him up, sack him out? He said, well, no, we sacked him out here with this rope on his foot and around his neck. And... and uh, we're going to saddle these other horses, and then we're going to put them all in here, and we're going to get on. <laughs> the hell? You say, excuse me? So, and I'd never heard of anything like that before without the leg tied up in a, in a bronc, right? So he asked me, do you got one you want to start? And I'm pretty interested in this right now. So I go out, and I haze our horses in, and I grab a, a three-year-old roan colt out of our dandy barjet uh, bloodlines, and... Uh, very little handling, but we bring him in, and Nub talks me through doing all of this and demonstrates some of it for me. He said, here, can I, can I show you something? And he'd never say, get out of the way, do it like this. He'd say, let me show you something. Yeah, the presentation is everything. And, and then he'd show you, and then you feel like you could do it. And I've always been really good at mimicry of that kind of stuff. That's one of the things we try to teach to the, the folks that come here Mimicry is important because it can help you help be a shortcut for experience. If you can Correct. present yourself in the same physical manifestation, that's soothing to the horse. And it's uh, kind of like we call it borrowing confidence. I was going to say you're building confidence in that horse, right? He's, he's building yep. credibility in you. Yep. And if you, can, if you can put that into somebody else, we call it lending their confidence. And Bubba's really good at that. So... Nub Long is the guy that got me started in this Ray Hunt, Tom Dorrance, Branham and Pate journey that I've been on. And a very dear friend of mine, he's down there in Oklahoma sometime, would probably be a two-month series of podcasts for you if you were interested. Great, great guy, a lot of stories to tell. From that, I started to study everything that I could from that experience starting colts down there because we were riding those colts within a couple hours. We had five or six horses saddled in a 35-foot round pin and got on within a couple hours. 
Not one horse bucked, not one horse spooked to run. And it, it was just one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had. And from that, I started to study everything I could get my hands on. I got that Ray Hunt tape and I watched it with open eyes. I borrowed his Buck Brandeman tape and I didn't get offended because I realized Buck maybe was trying to be funny. Yeah, there might be some here. Resonate. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I became, and, but one of the things that Buck said in that, in that video series, I think it's from the ground up, the horse is never wrong. And then he further elaborates in some other piece that I really is the horse is either doing exactly what he thinks he needs to, to survive in that moment or exactly what you're asking him to do. Those yeah. are the only things yeah. that horse is ever going to do. If you accept that and realize the horse is never wrong in exercising his judgment, you start to own the outcomes and the inputs of that relationship. Yeah. And you start to work on yourself and that's when things start to change. And it's funny, I have, like one way I try to bridge the gap for people and understand these concepts is I I ask them all the bad that you talk about your horse or all the comments you you make about your horse reflect that same comment on you. Mm -hmm. If the horse isn't figuring it out or the stupid horse or why is he heavy or why is he being stubborn, ask yourself, why are you being stubborn? (laughs) Right. Change that perspective a little bit. And that's when the light bulb often switches it. Maybe I am a little heavy handed. Uh, Maybe I don't quite get it. Maybe I'm going too quick. Maybe I'm not as articulate with my cues as I thought I was. And, And that was a big turning point for me. Um, just in my self-reflection through the journey is that, you know, I'd go out and work. God, why isn't this horse getting it? Yeah. And then you get off the horse and you kind of get your mind right and put things back together. And, and it makes more sense for you. And when it makes more sense for you, you're able to convey it better and, and make more sense for the horse. And that it, it touches back to awareness like we talked about at the beginning of the show. Yeah, for sure. So I started to hang around Nub as much as I could then and then learn firsthand. And Nub was real good at giving you what you need and sending you out there to to go learn it. And the next formative experience I remember with Nub is I had I had probably and back then I was still doing this two horses instead of doing this with them. But I had a a three year old stud that I was super proud of and he was a gorgeous bugger and he was the the culmination of all four of our old bloodlines and there just wasn't anything I couldn't do on him. And as it was getting him started, we had a few late calves to brand. So we were, we were healing them and dragging them. I'd heal them and drag them out and I'd turn and I'd sit and hold them on my horse. And my horse would just kind of be creeping back. And, uh, Nub watched me struggle with that for about three or four calves. And he said, boy, Zach, that old lucky sure doing good. Could I, could I try him once? And I said, heck yeah, Nub, I'd be honored to have you ride him. So Nub got on my colt and he rode down there and healed a calf, drug it out, turned around and parked. And that son of a gun parked like his feet were set in the ground. And I said, Nub, I know you didn't want to tell me what to do yeah, while I was on but it. I'm going to ask it. <laughs> but now what are you doing that I wasn't doing? He said, Zach, you had some tension in your legs. And he didn't say you need to relax. The way he put it even lets you think, oh, wow. He said, you had some tension in your legs and you just got this horse so tuned into you that he thought you were asking him to go back. And I thought, well, I'll be dinged. And I got on, and then I did it what Nub did, and just exactly the same result. So he was really a great teacher, and 
I lived just over the hill from him for, God, I want to say six or seven years and didn't take advantage of that. And I, I don't regret really much or anything in my life, but if I had it to do over again, I'd hang up a little more and get on this path a little quicker. That's incredible. And, and that's the greatest joy for me in my experience with horsemanship is it. I mean, literally, the possibilities are endless, right? You can always push the envelope on your awareness or your softness or your communication or better reads on a horse. And and the tough part is, for a lot of people, is you talk about that experience, right? We, Mm -hmm. We as people often learn this horsemanship lesson a little later in our careers or a little later in life. So how do you make up that time, right? How do you obtain that education in lieu of experience, because we don't have 20 or 30 years to put into this sometimes. Yep. You know, so I think that point kind of touches on or provides the opportunity to kind of segue in some of the work done there at the DX Ranch. I know you guys offer an internship, and we've mentioned before previous guests, J.D. Steffen kind of went through a similar experience. So maybe you can elaborate on, on what your internship offers and then... We'll kind of move into some other projects you guys got coming up in 2019. You bet. And this is kind of, this all kind of came to be by virtue of Jen moving up here to to be with us and be part of the family. She had some students that she worked very closely with and developed some relationships with when she was training barrel horses and, and restarting horses for people in right there in metropolitan Fort Worth. Uh, we got to sitting around thinking about, you know, it sure be good to have some some kids around to help. Maybe we could make it like a summer camp experience where we get paid to do it. And that all started with some of the students that she had had down there, man, seven, eight years ago. And from that, we started to build out a program and, and kind of developed our own curriculum where we're kind of starting to put our own spin on this horsemanship deal. We were taking a lot of outside colts for other folks. The intern deal was just during the summer because it was the only time kids could really carve out to come to the middle of South Dakota. And we've had some really good hands come through here. I mean, uh, one of the young ladies that was an intern here that was one of Jen's students was just kind of a natural at this Another one, just, boy, she she wanted to be just like Jane. And then there's another gal that was there that that second summer. She's on Antarctica right now looking at penguins. So just... Holy just, smokes. We've really had a chance to, to get to know a lot of people from all across the country. And one of the thing that, things that we've realized in that is that once you kind of develop this with horses and you and you feel like you got that going pretty good... The quickest way to accelerate even further that relationship with horses is start to apply this to everything else in your world. We had an old power stroke diesel pickup out here that nobody else could start when it was cold out because it was kind of cold-blooded. I said, you guys just don't love it enough. (laughs) I go in there with good feelings, and I'm able to transmit that, and that pickup will start. This stuff works on inanimate objects. Yeah, you got to impose that goodwill. And they'd uh, they'd all just scoff at me, but old camo would start for me. So the the intern program has been a really great deal. It's, It's helped us to realize that we really do have something to offer, and a good demonstration of that is the kids that, that live on this place. You know, uh, 
I brag on Kelsey and Ty everywhere I go, and Jen brags on them as much as I do or more. But I like to think that they're the kids that Ray Hunt talked about. When when Ray says, you know, his his dream for the future is someday I'm going to be riding along and I'm going to see a kid doing this on a horse. And he said, hey, where'd you learn that way? And the kid says to Ray, my dream, Ray says, is the kid says to me, was there ever another way? Yeah. And my, the, that's awesome. Kelsey, Kelsey and Ty live that way. And shoot, Kelsey put, while she was in school, in college, she'd come home and she had this one horse that she was fiddling around with named McLovin. And she'd put a ride on every, maybe every three weeks or every month and was making progress. And that's one of the things that we've learned. It's kind of an, an aside to this, but when you take things at the horse's pace, you don't have to go back and reteach him every day. You can start a colt today. If you take him at his pace where he's learning it, it's going to be there in two weeks when you come back to it. If you believe in what you're doing and you truly got through and helped him learn it. When you're teaching things to people, sometimes you got to, or horses, you got to go back and reteach them. But when you use that awareness and that empathy and try to understand where they're coming from, and you adjust your presentation to help them learn it, then they own it. And that that's a critical thing. And Kelsey had done this with McLovin. She had maybe 15 rides over the course of three years on this thing. And I said, Kelsey, could I try him out? He looked like fun. And I went over there, and I stepped on him. And I said, well, I'm just going to check him out. And I asked for a canter to part, and it felt like I had ridden him for five years. I mean, just, just right off into a canter departure. And I was like, man, that college deal don't work out. I've got a prospect for you here. I was say, we, we got something else that might work. <laughs> and and Ty's the same way. And they have the benefit of never having to unlearn. Yeah, break those bad habits. That, yeah, and it's and I don't like to describe them as bad habits, Jason, because then that can put people on the defensive. They, you don't have to get people to unlearn the things that, kept them from learning what they would have. Everybody would do this if they could see it. Yeah. And if you say, well, you, you know, so I try my best to not describe anything with negative connotations just mm-hmm. to avoid the defensive nature of, of humanity mm-hmm. and to treat them at least as good as I treat my horses and my cows. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's really missing in the national discourse from my perspective is Especially some of our egg egg brothers and sisters, you know, they they're about half mad at the people that just want some want to try on their own. And I just keep thinking, how about if you treated every person as good as you would treat your cow? Make sure that you're helping them to have the feed they need. Make sure you're taking care of their health. How could they prosper then if they didn't have to worry about those things? Yeah, that's what you want for your livestock. Why don't we want that for all of humanity? So, you know, I've, we've really tried to take this to the next level here with our program and try our dangest to live the example that we're talking about. And we hope to be able to share that with folks through our life mentorship program and through our nonprofit Project Help. You know, Project Help is the way we give back. What we hope to do with the, the life mentorship clinics and the ranch vacations and the stuff like that is enable us to do more of that because those things take re- take resources often capital resources you can't 
give back from a pot of nothing correct as as effectively as you can if you've got some resources to do it with so that that's our that's our goal with growing this bigger is to someday have every one of us that wants to be on the place doing this practicing this sharing this be able to afford to and make a living here doing it yeah. that's why we're diversifying the beef operation where we're looking at ranch vacations wanting to get these bunkhouses rented out to some hunters next year so that so that we can maybe step out of our roles where we're getting paid by someone else to to do the good in the world that needs to be done and start to devote all of our time and resource to do it here. It's incredible. You guys do have a, a clinic coming up in May, I believe. Yes, we do. Can we talk about what that clinic has to offer people? You bet. I'd love to. Jen and I got to thinking about this 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 winter, uh, probably this fall, last fall, I guess, and and talked with Kelsey and Ty and Melissa, one of our interns. I haven't even talked about Melissa. My goodness, she's one of the interns that we've adopted as a member of the family. She lives here on the place now and is and is sharing the goodness that we do and and kind of facilitates our project help work. Great hand, absolutely natural at this lifemanship deal, and just fits around here. But we had a visit with all of them and asked if they'd be willing to help if we did bring some people in, so that we could give. Uh, a more intimate clinic experience to 10 or 12 folks. And uh, our, our cousin, Bert, who does all of the actual ranch work on the place for us so we can all be off doing our thing. Forgot about Bert, too, and not intentionally because he's out doing chores right now so I can sit in here and visit with you on the on the podcast. Um, well, thank you. It's deserved to him. It's, it's, it, it is a, it's a team effort here, and we wanted to make sure that the team was on board with with participating in this May deal that we're trying to put together. So we're going to try to have 10 or 12 folks come out. They can either bring their horse and their living quarters trailer, or we'll put them up here like one of the family and put them on one of our horses. We're working on an agenda, but it's more an agenda that's got topics instead of tasks because we really believe in the adjust to fit the situation mantra that, that Ray and a head and if everything goes exactly as we expect and we just check off our agenda items we feel like we've done a disservice to them because we've kind of just done it to them instead of done it with them it's a phenomenal approach because i can tell you in watching other clinics that do have that agenda right you just try to mash through all of your topics and and whether you're retaining any of it or not is a completely separate issue but in my experience and in, in my horsemanship journey and the, the the mentor that I have, it is just that there's there's concepts that need to be learned and we learn them. Yep, if it's learned exactly. in a half an hour, great. We move on to the next one. If it takes two days to do it, then we take two days to do it. But it goes back to the the retention and comprehension that you talked about, right? When we're doing it on the yep. horse's time and we're doing it on the human's time so we can get everybody on the same page, uh, you develop that strong foundation rather than having to go back and fix things after the fact. Yep, it's the difference between learning and being taught. In my opinion, it's truly more effective than just checking those boxes and dedicating a certain amount of time to a task and, and following that agenda mantra. You bet. So our, our kind of our, our teaser for the for the clinic is that, you know, here here's the first part of our agenda, and we're going to put all of our agenda up here a piece at a time, but 
we might not even get to this. We might have a whole new agenda for the next bunch of friends we get to visit with. Correct. Because we want to do this with you and help you pro- provide a shortcut almost, Jason, because what what I look for when I when I go to a clinic is I want to I want to realize the benefit of the experience without the blood, the tears, the sweat or the money that they had to spend to get it. Correct. And if a clinician is doing its job right, you walk away feeling like you got a shortcut and you got some inspiration and you feel good about what you're doing and that you've got a foundation to go do it from. I had a chance to ride with Kurt Pate once way back in 2005. And one of the things that he told me really resonated. Uh, he said, you know, I, I, I watch a lot of these other guys and they're doing their thing and they're having luck and they're doing good and, and they've got people following them. But, when I watch, I don't even remember who used it as an example. I don't see the things that Ray Hunt was doing coming through there. I don't ever remember Ray Hunt taking a horse's nose around and moving his hindquarters. And I, when I look at what Ray was doing, everything was kind of on a slack rein. And then he reminded me to go back and watch that Ray Hunt and Friends started, cult starting benefit for Tom Dorrance. And... Ray Ray was doing something different and it's almost doing less, but there's so much intention there when Ray does it, that the horse can feel the intention. Yeah. And it's, and if we can help people realize how to present that consistency of intent, the mechanical thing you're doing really probably doesn't matter. I mean, you can, one of the things that we tell people is, your cue can be whatever your cue wants. The way you present that cue to your horse, if you're thoughtful in the application and timely in the release, you can teach your horse to just try. So where I might put my leg on at the girth to get my horse to move his shoulder to the left, other people want that horse to, to arc around that inside leg. You know, mm-hmm. both, are, both are right. And a horse can do either one if you have the consistency of intent built into them, that the, the, if they realize that a person can be consistently intentional with what they're doing, that creates a desired response, the horse will start to look for the response and he'll start to try harder and fill in even more than they already do for you. Yeah, and I think I think a big hurdle in a lot of this is it's it's human beings' natural response to reward the physical effort of the horse. Mm-hmm. However, when you start to understand the horse and reward the try, the mental try of the horse, uh, that's when you really can start to go places because yep. you start to foster that confidence in the horse. And no matter what you ask them now, they're working on trying because they know if they try, life is good. Yeah. You know, and oftentimes a, tr- a horse can try and try and try, but physically they're not doing what's being asked. And, and because you keep on them, Looking mm-hmm. for that physical response, you know, you're almost discouraging that try. They just get confused. They get frustrated, you know, yep. and it makes it difficult and it and it creates a lot of discourse in the relationship. See, and I, when we have folks here, I'll throw them on any horse that I'm riding. I'll throw them on. Some some people don't have that same inclination. They're worried that a, a green rider or someone doing things different will mess up their horse. I, I have that. You can, you do whatever the heck you yeah. want to do to him. As long as you're doing it with a smile 
and good intentions. I don't care if you end up cracking him on the rump to get him to go or blasting him in the rib with a spur. If you've already asked for the leg, you're not going to undo what I've done with that horse. When I get back on, it's going to feel like what I left. Yeah, we're going to get right back to it. it. Yeah, you can't you can't ruin it except with bad intentions, and I think I can even overcome that. As you say, so there's we, a there's a way to write that as well. Yep. So so I don't you know, I'm not bashful about putting green folks on our horses and letting them learn together. Uh, one of the things that we've realized is that folks that are really foreign to this get on our horses and expect more of an ATV experience, and for a while until they start to to bite on what we're talking about and that, that transference of energy from you to the horse to, to be the, the catalyst for them engaging their impulsion. They get on our horses and it looks like they're riding an old plug. And oftentimes we'll have to get on and say, well, here, let me show you. We'll do literally next nothing and we'll lope off. So we help the people understand if you can put this and this and this together, you'll start to get this result. Yeah. It's building so, blocks. Yeah. We, we uh, do some trail rides with one of the local uh, golf clubs here. And we had some ladies out last summer, Bert and I took them on a trail ride. The struggle was real on the way out. Bert and I were on a couple Colts and we're riding along and they're on our older horses. They hadn't ever ridden this way. The, and frankly, they were riding the way I rode up until I was probably 20 years old. You you kick them to go. You pull right to go right. Yeah. You pull left to go left. You pull back to stop them. And that that's how they knew to ride. But when they had a chance to say, well, you, well I can do that. And we talked to them about having a longer focus. Get Get your focus out there further. You're looking at the back of his head. He don't know where you want him to go. And... By the time we were turned around riding back to that trailer, they were all saying, man, this 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 feels good. This is what I wanted it to feel like. Yeah, this is where we I should said, be. I said, you know, when we have interns out, we don't typically go ride in the pasture until they kind of get, get on with us because it's too frustrating for them to go out there and have that experience. You know, so we, we make sure that we shield them from that experience and help them be more prepared when we do go out into the country. Cause it's, you know, our, our, our horses will, will try their best for you, but you have to be giving them something to try about that's consistent. Otherwise they just feel like, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to move from that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been entertaining to, to watch and, and see people's progression. Once they realize, Hey, I, I can change the way I'm doing things and have an impact. Well, the Katie bar the door. There they go. Yeah, change can happen. That's for sure. At the clinic, we're 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 going to have a mix of our horses and their horses, and and there'll be a lot of trading horses if they're willing to let us get on theirs and show, and vice versa. And another of the things that Kurt Pate says is, I learned as much at one of these deals as anybody else does, and we're looking at it as a learning experience for us too. To to further develop our ability to deliver lifemanship. And we've, through the course of our talk, without even putting them together, we've hit on what our foundational tenets of lifemanship are. It's awareness, empathy, and presentation. Now, to us, awareness 
isn't just paying attention in the moment. It's almost a, a prescience or a, or a have your mind on it beforehand. The way we explain it is if you're going to the barn, be thinking about what you're going to do when you get to the barn. Because your horse is going to measure you the instant he sees you. And if you've had a bad day and you're bringing that down there, I bet your bottom dollar he's going to be tough to catch because he ain't going to want any of your drama. Correct. So awareness is get yourself right internally first and get in that frame of mind to where you're engaging in a partnership. And then understand that empathy, understand where your horse is coming from. He might have got kicked in the hip yesterday, and he might be a little sore, and he might need to just loosen up a little bit. So be aware and have empathy for where the horse is, and then you adjust your presentation to get where you wanted to go to start with. Yeah, you got to find that common ground. Yep. Those are our three foundational tenets. And why we call it lifemanship is because we've taken those tenets to the next level, and we talk about them in the classroom, in the workplace, and every encounter that you're going to get into with another living, thinking, breathing being, they've got a perspective. Their perspective is their reality. Your perspective is your reality. If you have an idea of where you want to go together, it's incumbent on you to understand their perspective, be aware that they have a different one, and change the way you're doing it if it's not going the way you want it. If it's going the way you want it, you guys just run together and you make a, a really good two-entity two stampede. But you have to be willing to change the way you're doing things if you want to get to your outcome. Yeah, and I think the biggest point to kind of touch on that is marrying the concepts of intention and reception. The human being can intend a cue a certain way or intend to do a certain act, but if that intention is not received by the horse on the same level, mm-hmm. right? you start to have that breakdown in communication. And, and we see it all the time. I think the easiest way to do an example of it is, you know, you may think you're riding in a certain position or a certain way or carry a certain energy, but if you were to watch a video of yourself doing that yep. same exact riding, does that video and what you see marry with what you are feeling? And, and it just goes back to that. You got to make sure that you you are clearly conveying a message to your horse, and and you got to be aware of your horse and and if they're receiving that message in the same manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we had a we had a and to go back to the way my the kids here just get this. They don't have to learn this. Yeah. You know, Ty Ty has a Ty's got a four year old Bayron stud uh, that were that he started. He did all the work on and. He he's never he's hardly ever swung a rope on him. He's got maybe forty rides on him over the course of three years, and we had a ranch rope in here last fall. So I had old Chang, and I was gonna sneak in there, and I was gonna heal a critter because it'd be a little easier. But a really good chance for a turnover shot came from here across the pen. So I pitched it on and necked that big old seven hundred pound calf. First thing, first thing he'd ever had tied onto him, and that horse was just there. But he was the result of that consistency of intent. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, I, t- I tell a story on Jen. She, if she's nearby, she'll probably throw something at me. But she was riding her, her really good barrel horse that she brought up with her from Texas. And we were down at the old place in the outdoor arena. The, the mare was a little stiff. And 
At that point in her development, Jen would probably tell you that she was looking for external things to help address that. And she didn't believe that she could just pick that mare up and get her sopped. I said, well, just, just pick up that rein and she's going to, she's going to yield. She's going to tip her nose. Just, and she's, so she didn't believe right then. So she picked it up and just held it. And that horse could feel the lack of belief in that rein and in her presentation. And I said, watch this. And I went up there and I just put my hand on the rein and instantly that horse yielded. And she's like, well, she probably had some choice words for me at that point. Then, but, but now <laughs> we'll leave that for now, off the air. <laughs> now, now she believes and she can do that with others. But before you can see it and feel it yourself, it's hard to believe in. I think you just hit the nail on the head. And that was that was my experience. I had done homework on this stuff. But until I physically saw it with my own two eyes and was in the presence of a horseman and the horse, yep. it's kind of a hard concept to wrap your mind around. If you can't believe, if you don't believe in it, the only way it's ever going to happen is just sheer luck. Yeah, statistical it may, probability. It may happen, but but if you if you can see it and know it and then start to believe in the possibility, one of the things we tell people is you know do what you believe in or believe in what you're doing. Either one of those equations equals success. Yeah, that's incredible. That's good stuff. But if, if you don't believe, we can't believe for you. We yeah. can show you, but you got to at some point own it. Yep. And that's the, 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 one of the things about the internship program that, that we really harp on is the quicker that you can start to hear this stuff in your own voice, the quicker you'll start to have that ownership of it. So our interns find themselves in a teaching role very shortly after they get here. One, two days in, we'll have some of the youth from – with the project help deal here and our interns go right into teacher mode. JD's been here and done it. Melissa's done it and is great at it. Every one of the, the kids that we've had out for our intern program have realized the benefit of teaching things. And it's kind of what they do with doctors, you know, see one, do one, teach one. Yeah. We, we employ that same thing here so that instead of, instead of them hearing me say what, Nub said that he heard Ray said through Kevin Stallings, they start to hear, you know, one of our young local superstars is uh, TC. And she's starting to hear this in her own voice now, starting to do her own things. And then we had a young fella here from Saudi Arabia last year, Azam. And there was a lot of, a, a big lack of belief in his ability to do it. And, uh, but by the end of the, end of the time here, he had started a cult and he, it just became so natural to him that he didn't realize it was, it was sort of a monumental event. For, I was uh, say that's huge change in a very, very short period of time. Yeah. And, and he was here, even though English, English wasn't his first language, he was here teaching our kids some of whom English probably isn't their first language either. Some of them might still be Lakota speaking in the household. But he was able to convey this because he could see it, believe it, and share it. And that, you know, that that's the that's kind of the thing that sets our intern program apart, I think. You're not the the poop scooper here. Yeah, you're part of the family. I I, I have probably scooped more poop than all of our interns together during their time here. But you know, Melissa's first day here, 
she was riding one of the ranch studs, halter-breaking a colt from its back. We, we will put you in a controlled environment to learn, and we're not just going to use you to make our life easier. Yeah. That, that's, we, we, we frown on those type of internships. You're not coffee getters. You're not chore doers. We're going to do that all right alongside you. If you see us do it and you want to try it, you're welcome to try it. It's an incredible approach, an amazing investment. Um, I know JD spoke very, very, very highly of all of the DX Ranch crew, and which has led me to Jen and now to you. And for people out there, I mean, if they're interested in these internship programs or, or in this clinic, uh, where do they find you guys? Where do they enroll? How do they get a hold of you? We're uh, Duchino Quarter Horses on Facebook is where we've got the the literature starting to go up on this with some pictures of the stuff that we're doing. Uh, my phone number is 605-222-3852. We've got a website, thedxranch.com, thedxranch.com. Jen's got Twitters and Instagrams and all of that kind of stuff that I don't understand. We might even have Snapchats. Any one of the crew that you get a hold of is as good as the other. You know, my brother Gus, brother Bud, Kelsey, Ty, Jen, Melissa, Bert. We're all practitioners of lifemanship here, and we're all more than willing to share what we've got. You guys have an incredible story. I think it's an amazing crew that you've put together. I think you guys are at the forefront of of an approach to internships in turning that tide from basically doing busy work to to becoming an invested member in, in a team. In closing, I like to give every guest the opportunity to kind of share either their life motto or, or lessons learned or any investment that they think they can pass on to listeners. Well, I'll, I'll leave you with some of the words of my dad. And if there's people that are easily offended that listen to this, turn your radio down for a minute or two and you'll be all right. <laughs> but when, when we would, as teenagers, be griping about the things that we have to do or someone would need something and we'd have, we'd have to go help them, a man would just kind of look at us and he said, would it hurt you a goddamn bit to help them? Yeah. And when you really examine life, it wouldn't hurt us a bit, so help. And that's the, that's the mantra that we kind of operate from around here. And we hope it resonates, and I want to, in part, personally invite you to come out and spend some time with us, share it with us, and we'll share some stories and learn some stuff together if you get a chance. Oh, I think it would be an incredible opportunity. I'm definitely going to have to set some time aside. And It's been an awesome couple weeks getting to know JD and Jen and now yourself, and I think I got plenty to learn from you all and, and would love the opportunity. It's it's. I'm very grateful for it, and it's a very selfless act on your part, but it's very much appreciated. Excellent. And I want to make sure that I get J.D. thanked on the air for, for getting us hooked up with you. We yeah. really appreciate it, and he's a dang good young man. If anybody's looking for Colts that need started, Otomale Horsemanship is where we take ours. Yeah, that's impressive. Good work. Well, Zach, I, I thank you very much for your investment and everybody else, and uh, we're looking forward to many episodes here in the future and maybe kind of developing more in Project Help and and kind of telling the story of that side of the nonprofit. That'd be great. Yeah, there, there's a whole there's a whole line of discussion that we didn't even get in there into there where my brother Guth and I kind of had this epiphany about applying this to to people. So that'd be a great 
a great subsequent episode. I think we'll have to put some together. Sounds good, my friend. I sure appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing. I, I, I hadn't heard of the podcast till JD told me about it, but I'm a, a regular listener now, and I'm, I'm going back through the archives. So. Sir, I sure appreciate all your support, and we'll talk to you down the road. Take care, Jason. Have a good one. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.